Stay tuned to part two of our conversation with spiritual teacher and spiritual warrior, Thomas Ubel. We need him now more than ever. Enjoy. God bless. Thank you. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. And if there's one theme to what you're recommending, it would be to use the the classic term purification. And it's probably important for us to do a little discernment here because in some of the worlds, in communities such as this conference we're at, or the integral community, shadow work has become the theme and the term. But really, shadow work is only a part of the larger purification process. And you've, you've pointed to various kinds of unconscious experience, un, unmetabolized unconscious experience. So it feels really important for maybe for us to put in a nudge for a correction to much of the thinking now that not all the purification work is just shadow work. Some of it you've said is very clear. You've become aware of, you know, no, I didn't metabolize that experience with John. So that's clear, that's obvious, but then there are layers that are more or less accessible to awareness, some of which are quite unconscious and some of which, a small part of which are actually shadow. So we need to, it feels like it's really important for us to make those distinctions. Very. And that we see colonialism, racism, the Native American genocide, the Holocaust, all these things, there's so many layers of, and they overshadow each other. So there are questions that we are not, that we don't even know that we don't ask. Yes. And that's the depth of the ocean. It's so dark there that my, once I am already a bit aware of shadow, I, there's already a little bit of light that shines into like a dark room. So right. I know that there is a room. Yeah. And I start asking, actually, hey, can you tell me what's over there? But if I don't even know that there is a room, I will never ask about the room. So it doesn't, for me, it doesn't exist. So shadow is often understood as the stuff that we already kind of know about. But then there is so much, much deeper shadow or collective trauma material that none of us asks about because it's so out of the range of our conscious awareness. Yeah, and you, you implied something very crucial in the, the kinds of things of which we're unconscious. There can be personal di- psychodynamics, which are oppression, suppression, projection, which are operating internally, but there are also physiological and cultural blinders. You know, the language, their social class or system or p- p- position in society all those can act as blindness for which we need each other as correctives and that we once you say something that is or i say something that is encoded trauma and you confirm it so and you understand what i'm saying then i often say when people say okay I, i go to an exam at the university somebody a student comes to you to take an exam and then the person says, oh, I'm afraid to, to take this exam. And then somebody else says, yeah, yeah, I know, I understand this. And then I would say, what do you understand? 
And then, yeah, that you're afraid. It's so normal to be afraid. I said, yeah, but your fear has nothing to do with your exam. You know, your fear has something to do with your past, not with the exam that you're going to take. And then if we confirm the shadow that we that is built into our language or the itification of processes, it suddenly becomes an it. It's not that I see, because people say, yeah, there's a muscle contraction in my back and I have a pain in my back, but it, the pain is actually a constant effort to suppress fear. I'm not saying I'm sitting here, I am contracting the muscles of my back, that's why it's painful, and that's why I need, a, I don't know, a treatment. I'm, I'm saying I have a, a pain in my back. It's an it. And so that the unconscious process, if it gets confirmed, it looks like we know what we are talking about, but we actually mm. just, the language is already encoded trauma, and the symptom became so normal that we know, like a table, you know that's a table, I know it's a table, so, oh yeah, the table. And so we perpetuate shadow material by just having it encoded in language. Ah, okay. You know, so the language yeah. became the fixation of the shadow. That's why precision is needed, because we need to stop for a moment and say, why do you understand him that he is afraid? So because you share the same shadow, you say you understand each other? So shadow is a, is a mutual we investment. It's like a big corporation, like a stock corporation where you everybody buys shares. And then we fund, I don't know, a big tech company with our mm -hmm. shares. And the collective unconscious, the con unconscious is not personal. Because the shadow, I, you need me to invest in your shadow for it to stay your shadow. You're saying something that seems very important and not widely recognized. In fact, you're just illuminating aspects of it for me, which is great. So you're pointing to the fact that our language embodies multiple aspects of our, our level of development, our clarity, our degree of purification or, or, or non-integration, the states of consciousness we're familiar with. It's like... Our language is an embodiment of the multi-dimensional aspects of our being. Beautiful. And we share that, and ideally it can be a mutual illumination, but what you're saying, which is really important, it can be a mutual collusion. Collusion. And that's what it often is. And that's what I meant before. We are sitting in a collectively traumatized world, and how people taught us to speak includes already the fixation of the trauma. So we become, as children, we grow into a world and we become shareholders of a traumatized world. And then we say, oh, where is the trauma? Mm -hmm. But it's already ingrained in my, the way I talk, the way I heard all my people around me talk, became my reality. And that's why it's so hard to see. It's actually one of the things that affects us the most is one of the things that we see the least. And that's why this language, so being precise, you also see it in the spiritual field a lot, that people use all kinds of mental or spiritual arguments to deal with regressive behavior. So, yeah. We are anyway one. Yeah, but how many people on this planet live in a state of consciousness that is non-dual? Oh, but no. many people talk about it as if it was a reality. And for mm. people that are not in that state, it's not true. Even if it's philosophically true, right. it's not true. If I feel fragmented and separate from somebody, so I feel distant, and then I tell you, yeah, but we are anyway one, why do we have this conflict? What an argument. Like we, I use higher spiritual things that I read somewhere to argue in a way 
that is totally inauthentic to who I am right now. So you're pointing to, a, you know, for example, in many traditions, there's the understanding that our, the way we use language is incredibly important. I think Jesus' statement, the truth will set you free, is one of the most profound aphorisms that's hit the planet. In Buddhism, there's right speech. But what you're pointing to is something that often isn't recognized, that the practice of truth-telling, it's an art. A skill, yes. Yes. and it requires more and more subtle discernment to appreciate the extent to which my words actually reflect my experience, yes. that they are not embodying and carrying the my desire to look good or any number of side messages or motivations. That's right. And that's an incredible practice. Incredible. Because if you break it down, you will see how language became the fixation of our past. Yeah. It keeps the past in place. Yes. And that's why we cannot evolve. Because we, together, as much as together we can be inspirational and innovative, we together keep the destiny of humanity fixated. And then we complain about it. But actually, we are the ones that are shareholders in the deepest stagnation of humanity also. And we hear it when you just listen to the political conversation, how often we are not using right speech. And then it seems like, yeah, you can talk about the president, you can talk about this party, you can talk about it in a way that is already contributing to the pollution of the yeah. social fabric. Yeah. And also in many organizations, when what people call in the traditions, the bad tongue. So if, if I talk with you about him, so it seems like I create an, a loyalty alliance and I strengthen my position. But what I actually do is I'm polluting the social erosion. And to get into a, like a state where we don't do this, where yeah. our practice is a commitment to stop talking about each other, I can tell you what's hard for me with you, but I cannot talk about you. Yeah, and, and for me, the way that's kind of crystallized out is before saying anything to you about anyone else. So the criterion is, have I already told that to the person directly or would I be willing to? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's clarifying relationships. Even if it's hard for me, I need to come up to you and tell you how I feel with you, if it's possible, if the, the, the person is around or it's, it's possible. But I, I, to clarify relationships is so important because I believe relationship, our relational network around us is the extension of our immune system. If that relational ecosystem is, is a mess, it's going to affect me, it's going to affect you, it's going to affect us. And we actually invest in the disintegration of higher states of consciousness. So I need to understand that, as you said, speech is so important because the word is, is it's the beginning of the Bible. It's like the word is creation. Yes. So I'm not just saying things, I'm creating something. Yes. And, in the, and in the Vedas, Vak or speech is a God. Right. A creative, creative yeah. God. That's and the power of speech. So I really want to just um, emphasize what you're saying here because this is not something which is in the culture, just the art of speech and of truth-telling as, as a lifetime art and discipline in and of itself, mm -hmm. both as a means to and as an expression of deeper inner work. You're one of the first people I've heard pointing to the need for this 
precision of sensitivity to both one's experience and the congruence of the words with it. Yeah. What could you say about how to how we can do this practice? First of all, I believe that every one of us, when we pay attention from a certain level of, of awareness, I get small little details when I am present in a conversation. I feel often, for example, in the as you know, in the attachment work, there's a very lovely saying. It says that I feel in a conversation, I feel you and feel you feeling me. That's how kids learn. The kid, like feels immediately if the parent pays attention and feels the child. So children have lots of antennas out if the parent is really with me. And if you're not, then they start to do all kinds of stuff to get the attention of the parent. And so how often in relation when we talk to somebody that I feel how you feel me right now, that I have an awareness. Often we are so separate that we don't pay attention. We, if at all, I feel what I feel, but that I feel you, and that I feel you feeling me is a complex communication skill. And some therapists maybe develop that, but that's not at all uh, a very developed part Common of our society. Yeah. Yeah. But we have to practice that. And if I practice it, I will see, oh, often when we give ex mental explanations, they actually protect the dissociated parts of ourselves. So actually mm -hmm. I'm saying when I try to be right, I actually tell you, that I don't feel myself. Mm. And so there are many small clues and many small moments where we see the incongruency. And the next step is that I start examining how I speak, that I become more aware. And of course, we need to handle this with care because people who are used to hold back, they might hold back more. So we need to, it's not for everybody the same. But that I become more aware that I'm trained to be who I am by a traumatized world. And so this means that the language patterns that we use, some of it is great, that's free language, and some of it is encoded trauma. It's like the programming language of my operating system is already encoded trauma. And so I need to find the parts of my programming that create my iOS or my Windows, and it has issues, and I'm always complaining about the issues of my operating system when in fact the issues are in the source code of the operating system. And so language is part of that source code. Mm. That's why in the Jewish mm. tradition, the letters of the language are so important because the language, the letters and words are the building blocks of the foundation of our reality. That's why Kabbalah or the Jewish mysticism deals so much with letters and words mm. because letters are the building blocks like the dices of the divine. So you put them together in different codes, and they are codes. And once you get that, you say, wow, I'm programmed by a world that developed, of course, over many thousands of years, but the language is encoded life material. And so just by becoming aware of that, that's meaningful for how my life unfolds, and that when I talk badly about many people, it's not just that it's gone when I did it. It created something. And after six months, when something happens to me in my life, I'm not aware anymore that I talk badly about so many people. And then I complain, yeah, I'm always suffering. It always happens to me. Yeah, but I also contribute something to it. So the hygiene or the, the, the purification, as you said, is in everything I do, it creates 
a more and more purified ecosystem around me. And I believe climate change is just an externalization of the pollution that we carry inside and how we live, how we create relations, how we clarify relations. In many, when we do couple counseling, you can really see how couples that something happened that hasn't been resolved. And then there is this subtle turning away that starts the beginning of the end of the relation. And then people sit in the office and they want to take care of their marriage, but they actually cannot even look anymore at each other mm -hmm. because the energetic perception is once we do this, we start feeling all the stuff that we never talked about, that we never integrated, that we never said sorry for, that we never felt each other's pain. And I think that that's just in one marriage, and we all know how often that happens, that people actually don't live anymore with each other, they live beside each other. Mm. And then all the cultures, because I, I think collective trauma work actually has to lead up to the fact that heads of nations, heads of religions will say sorry to each other publicly. Yeah. Like the German and the Jewish state or in, in the US and, and the slavery and the Native American, we need to come to that. But sorry, not because it's politically correct, because it's a consequence of a long process of integrating that pollution that we created, that hurts, that pain, that not talking, that fragmentation, that we come to a unified world, like an embodied unified world. That's what people call the body of Christ, is actually humanity being able to embody the principles that Christ showed us, or Buddha showed us, or any, any other big saint, that it becomes a cultural embodiment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's our path. I'm hearing from you the use and from a place of witnessing consciousness, the ability to see, to experience, to feel so many different levels of this. There's the somatic and sensory, and you've used so many words that describe all the different sensory modalities and an emotional level and a mental conceptual level and a communication level. As we begin to heal these things within ourselves and especially in relation with others, with friends, with co-workers, in our intimate relationships, and especially between collective as a whole. This requires the co-participation of everyone. It sounds like this is a process that starts within oneself and in what we bring to the world. And is that a good way to begin to elicit some of these changes in our larger field? And That's right. What we're experiencing. That's right. I can only start with myself and I cannot make it dependent if a single other person on the planet does it as well. Yeah. It's not about who else does it. And to, no, if I only, me is doing it anyway, it doesn't matter. You know, what can I change? No, if I'm committed to my awakening or to awakening as such, I'll do the work regardless if anybody else does it. And, not, and I also am not the one to tell you to do it. I'll do it. And if my work radiates out and it inspires somebody, because in, in, in religion, we saw so often that how people try to force their God perspective onto somebody else. But I, I believe deeply that if people walk their practice authentically, it will inspire the people that need to be inspired by it. And the people that are not inspired by it will not be inspired by it. They don't have to be convinced. You know, we are just like, I think light radiates naturally. And the people that need to be touched, they will be touched. And of course, we can get together and do what we're doing right now. And you create with your 
series also like a community and the community is inspired and it creates a field and that field has an effect. But I believe we always start with ourselves mm. and mm. We, we walk and then we, and I believe another thing is also, I'm not anymore committed just to my comfort. A yeah. serious practitioner is one that can go on the left, on the right side of the street. And I and life can walk me wherever I need to be. And if that's, you know, and if I feel I walk into something that's uncomfortable, I will be as committed as to um, having fun with you. Or, right. you know, yeah. having a conversation like this. Yeah. But, let, me, let me share. It's all going back to Berlin to me. All right now. But I was in Berlin right on this period. I think I met you. And I was invited to a dinner. And there was a, a man who was, as far as my understanding, some kind of banker in Germany. And he'd made a comment, and I've been the only American around, about how his grandmother's family had died in the fire. Um, just, you know, it's just kind of this comment. And, and I went to the bathroom, and I was like, oh, God, that hurt. When we were getting ready to leave, I just, I grabbed them, and I hugged them, and I said, I'm so sorry. Dressing, we didn't have to do that. That was a strategic necessity for stopping Denver. That was just, I'm sorry. And I started weeping, and he started weeping. You know, it was just one of those moments. And later he contacted me and said, you know, he had never, he wasn't expecting that. He wasn't looking for that. And he certainly never had an American apologize for that. And it was, uh, it was just one of those moments. In fact, I think I included it in the book on recovery for some reason. Mm-hmm. But the depth of that work, whether it's individually or collectively, and we're, we're so fragmenting so much in the world today, we're becoming so tribalized, and this is how we see it all over Europe and our country. So there's two parts of it. There's a part where you reach out and you apologize, mm-hmm. and there's the part where you just hold it in yourself during your own practice. And I guess they're both beneficial, but is there also a yoga to be done when we fall into those places of deep collective suffering? Right. Any suggestions or advice, how to hold that and be with that and use that as, as a, a yoga, as a path for healing? Yeah, like I think what you said is like that every moment counts. Sometimes I do these exercises in group where I ask people, now share with your the person next to you for five minutes. And then I say, okay, so was this the most essential conversation you've ever had? And then they go, no. I say, why not? So why, why is that not the conversation that is your awakening? Why is awakening happening later? And so I think if we start living our life, that, that we recognize that we are authors, co-authors, and readers of the book of life at the same time. We are all writing something into the book of life and we are reading it. So we are experiencing it and we are co-creating it. And so every moment counts. So if you're awake enough in that moment to address whatever needs to be addressed, that's a moment where something opens up. And I believe if we all do it, we are all musicians in an orchestra. And not, there's not one person that needs to do everything. I mean, that's grandiose. But we all have to do something. And if we're all playing, so we are playing music together. But if you're not playing, we won't create a symphony. And it's true also on the, on the larger level. So there are some people 
once I said to William Urey that uh, I'm doing some online courses with William Urey, the mediator, mm -hmm. and so he mediated big conflicts with the U.S. and Venezuela, North Korea, and stuff like this. <laughs> and then I said, William, so one could say, hey, why do you spend your time in all these tense places, people yelling at you, people, you know, politicians yelling at you in your mediations, and so, you know, one could say, don't you want to do something that is more fun? But most probably being in that place is the highest joy for you because it's your purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think every one of us has a different purpose. And if we sit in that place and we take that place fully, then being in such a mediation where it's constantly heavy and full of tension and conflict, for somebody whose purpose that is, the person will feel absolutely aligned and in the light of their own awakening. Mm -hmm. And he said, yes. And he said, sometimes in the moments when really something opens up, there's such a light that fills the room. You know, he said, there's a kind of a sacred moment within the deepest conflict. There's suddenly a sacred illumination when something starts to change. And I believe some of us feel called to work more on this collective level. And that's also our place. And so when we deal, I don't know, with the heavy part of the Holocaust or anything that is looks like to other people very heavy and difficult, for some of us, that's the deepest exploration of our own purpose. That's where we find God. Yeah, that's where we find God. Yeah. And, and, and you're pointing to a very important distinction between happiness and meaning, yeah. meaning and purpose. And, and happiness isn't enough. Right. Despite all the Wall Street advertising and so forth, it's just it's yeah, you can have it all and everything isn't enough. If there's no meaning. I'd like to just pull out and just name some of the principles of what you've been saying, because there's so much you've said so so many things. One thing that stands out is that practice, this contemplative work, requires a precision and a sensitivity to all aspects of ourselves. And it requires a continuity in every aspect of our lives. That sounds crucial. And then another thing you alluded to was that our outer world reflects our, our inner world. And just extrapolating that, you mentioned uh, global warming, but even beyond that, now we have the multiplier effect of our technology. So that we have this awesome magnification of our intentions and capacities and mind states to the extent that the state of the world now reflects the state of our minds. Our technology is that powerful. And what we call our global problems are actually global symptoms. Mm -hmm. They're symptoms of our individual and collective dysfunctions, immaturities, pathologies, neuroses, etc., etc. And what that implies is that if we're to be really, if, if we're going to handle this, if we're going to the great issue of our time, of course, is the preservation of civilization. If we're going to do that, we're going to not only have to relieve hunger and reduce nuclear stockpiles and handle the ecological disruption, we're going to have to address the psychological and spiritual roots within us and between us, which, which created them in the first place. And so I just, I'm just trying to draw out the implications of what you're saying, and it feels like your collective trauma work is your way of entering into that larger field and that healing of both the outer and the inner simultaneously. Beautifully said, yeah. I, I totally agree. And that if we don't do that work, it will do us. 
So the undigested past, however big it is, will lead to similar symptoms over and over again, like traumatization resurfaces in a cyclic pattern, and it recreates the same symptoms, except either we we go through it through suffering through generations, and this breaks it down through experience, or through consciousness work, like spiritual and inner work, psychological and spiritual work, is actually the other option to take care of that energy. I often say if you kick a soccer ball, it will move until it discharges its energy. And, and that energy in us needs to be consciously discharged or integrated for it to stop that cycle and create something new. But every time we do it, it kind of leads to presence. If unintegrated history is past, but integrated history is present. So every step, every bucket of unintegrated past we bring into presence kind of clears our present space and makes a space for a new future. So that's why a client or a, uh, an organization or a culture doesn't have to go through the repetition anymore and can be inspired by something new. So we created space, like in the subject-object transcendence, like at the beginning, crawling is the most cool thing ever <laughs> for a child because it's much better than oh. just lying around, you know, and they crawl around and they are so happy. And then one day you see the child like copy pasting the energy of walking into its own mind. And then from a 2D image, it makes it into a 3D embodiment and then into a, a transcended and integrated 4D like spacious interior. So then I can walk and do other things while I'm walking. And I think that's for all of us. The more past we integrate, the more space we have for new inspiration and new insights and innovations and scientific breakthroughs. And otherwise, it's going to run us. And so what you're saying the further implication of the purification is that it opens channels, capacities for yes. creativity, novelty, and, and more appropriate responses to the present moment. That's right. That's it. That's it. And you were talking about, about purpose before, and I think a lot of us probably get into spiritual practice because we're just suffering. Mm -hmm. Okay, and sometimes we're suffering because we don't know our purpose. And, you know, there's a five-minute work week. There's a lot of, you know, morning routines and everything that are, that are pretty narcissistic. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. Maybe that's where people need to start on the journey, you know, just doing it for whatever personal reasons. But as it progresses and purpose begins to clarify, I would imagine that would clarify practice. In other words, there's probably times where you don't feel like practicing, although I'm sure it's very habitual now and you just get up and you do it because it's who you are. But I've noticed in my, my role as CEO of I Awake and talking and writing about practice and integral practice, there's oftentimes my purpose has kept me honestly, ethically practicing because it's what I tell other people to do. And what, you know, and, and I, I don't want to look at myself in the mirror and go, you hypocrite. Mm -hmm. And, and as the practice deepens and the purpose clarifies, I think that that's part of the purification process too. We're able to get rid of the stuff because it's, it's getting in the way of our, our greatest sense of fulfillment, satisfaction. That's what you're doing. 
what you're born to do here. Right, and that the practice also changes over time with your own development. It doesn't stay all the time the same. So like also in different phases of your life, some people get kids and some people, you know, they're young families. And so you need to adjust the practice. And also in your own, the more your inner growth happens, your practice is more and more included in everything you do. Mm -hmm. And it starts to become, because often we look at practice like past always implies that we need some time to take care of it. So then I need to go to a therapy session, but over some time I become more skilled and I can take care at least of part of my schedule while it's happening in the moment. Yes. So it becomes more and more integrated in the current present moment. So my practice also changes and then I will see periodically. So there's a new phase in my life. And then there is a moment when that phase hits like another ceiling. And then for some time, I'm a bit confused because it looks like, or some people practice and they're really lovely. They get into states and they get, and then they hit the ceiling of, of their current state of development. And then another level of disruption comes in, but they suddenly feel, oh, I lost all my meditative practice. I'm so confused. I'm thinking all the time. I have such an emotional stuff. And then we see actually that we are expanding levels of, of life and then when we hit a bigger level of life, so sometimes we take care of our personal stuff and it seems like, great, my life is flowing, you know, I'm more happy, I'm building more meaningful relations. And then the collective stuff starts to come up. Yeah. And then also suddenly I get a job promotion and I, and I start to work on a much larger scale in, in life. And then my life goes to a ne another level of energy. So the higher we go in our practice, also, the electricity that gets downloaded through our body will open up new channels. Yeah. And then I don't deal with my personal story anymore. Then I suddenly deal with collective things that are happening in our organizations, mm -hmm. in my whatever contribution to society. Or So I'm busy with other things that require a different practice and also often require different peers that know that world so that I can have an exchange on a new level. And you're pointing to the very important recognition that the practice is not, as it's often built, a you know, kind of path of greater and greater opening of light and pleasure. That's and joy, right. Et <laughs> it, no, what's going to Welcome happen? Welcome to hell, boy. <laughs> it opens up, and you, you said that inevitably there will become things will get clearer and clearer, but then there'll become confusion and paradox. And, but we tend to pathologize that and think it's a sign that something wrong, yet multiple traditions recognize this is an essential part of the path. In fact, you know, the twin lines that guard the gates of the Eastern temples are sometimes said to represent confusion and paradox. Right. And those who would have wisdom must walk through confusion and paradox. And, you know, the Castaneda teacher, teachings are, had their time, but they still had some beautiful things in there in the four traps of a person of knowledge were first fear, we all know that one, then the seduction of power. Mm, that's right. Finally, the fourth one was old age and the loss of energy and the temptation to just give in. And, but the third one is most interesting. It's clarity. And clarity as a trap is not something we usually think of. But if you reflect on it, you see that as you do this in a work and you grow, things get clearer and clearer. But that is a reflection of, of having a, a fixed worldview 
that we actually need to let go of oh, that's right. to move to the next level of understanding that required that liminal phase between letting go one worldview and understanding and self-image and self-concept is necessarily a, a disruption, a confusion, a, a feeling of not understanding and absolutely crucial to moving to the next That's step. Right. That's why once in the, in the meditation retreat in the Himalayas, a, a, I don't know, a prayer came to me and one line of the prayer is that I'm grateful for what I see and I'm grateful for what stays hidden because this is thy will and that's why I'm here. So that spiritual clarity is not that we see everything, that whatever we see and also what we don't see is part of God's will. Mm-hmm. And that's so hard to understand because the spiritual ego wants, I want the highest clarity, I want to know everything and see everything. But that, that's my spiritual ego because that's a lack of, of humility and devotion that also, because I often say in human development, I deeply trust human intelligence. Mm-hmm. And if a child needs to put a defense system in place in order to survive in the given family circumstances better, it's an intelligent process. Yeah. In the grown-up mm-hmm. person, that's not a dysfunction, it's a function. Mm-hmm. And often we say, oh, these are my weak parts, I want to get rid of my weak parts or my problems, I just want to be in the light. No, but the intelligence that the child needed in order to create what looks like a dysfunction in the grown-up's uh, life is actually an intelligent function. So it's the will of God in manifestation, but it looks like the darkness or the part that is not functioning. And so that speaks also to what you said, that the humility, that there might always be things I become aware of, but there might always be things that stay hidden. And this is God's will. And I bow down to that higher reality. And I don't need to understand always why that's that way, but because it's anyway God's will. And this is a lovely, and I think that speaks to the third trap also, Wanting to be clear in everything is a trap. And the more we open to that, as you're suggesting, the more it is just bottomless mystery. Yeah, right. Right. And for myself, the fact that I didn't understand things, I for so long thought, what's wrong with me? I'm not understanding. Until I finally had a blinding insight and it's totally obvious. That's reality. Reality is infinite bottomless mystery. Right. Right. And we are committed to find out and we are we are allowing the not knowing that things, certain things. If I don't understand, then that's the way it is. And that's beautiful because that's that puts me in the place like in the, in the vertical monotheistic traditions, the, the bowing down is such a and it's also in the Eastern tradition that the bowing is such an important element of insight, of the receiving a blessing. Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. we we are living in a Western society where the self-development, like I will make it, became the hero. Instead of bowing means I, I receive a blessing. And I think maybe one element that we didn't talk about that I think is, 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 is crucial is that we lost a little bit in the Western world the deep understanding of the sacred. Like yeah. the, of the sacred moment when something heals, the sacred moment when there is an insight, the sacred moment when there's a miracle. Yes. And because we are too much conditions, 
condition that the superman is the the ego that gets it done yeah. instead of that there is always something greater that is like the tailwind of evolution yes. that is with us and i think that's also important when we look at climate change like to stay connected to that and keep on walking even if it looks dark even if it's going to be difficult in the next decades that's even more a reason to be inspired and keep on walking you know it's mm. not about the outcome will we solve it or not will it work or not it's it doesn't matter we walk until the last day we walk because that's the only thing we are committed to yeah. and that that relieves us that it's not a bypass that it's difficult because it's going to be difficult most probably in society but it's it stays related yeah. and it feels like you're giving a beautiful distillation of karma yoga the, the tradition of doing our work not for ourselves alone but as an offering to god and doing it as impeccably as possible while simultaneously here's the real kick simultaneously letting go attachment to the outcome that's right that's, that's, that's the challenge that's the challenge, that's yeah. the challenge. Yeah. because oh how can we solve and will we survive and so yeah but that's not our business right now our business is how can we walk make the next steps towards a change and that's true i think that's a very important to let go of this attachment makes us actually more effective yes yeah yes that's the paradox which isn't so well understood right. in our cultures that's yes, right. beautiful but uh, you know this you're you're laying out these principles uh, in, a, in a beautiful way we do our practice we do our work and gratitude that we have this sense of larger purpose is can be so touching so mm-hmm. beautiful yeah mm-hmm. i just want to honor you the contributions you're making and the work you're doing and, what a wonderful dialogue this has been wonderful, it's yeah. so, so beautiful to, yeah. to ex- this feels like what I think we had hoped this exactly. this series would be would be a co-exploration of some a living exploration together mm-hmm. of these kinds of questions and it's just been a joy yeah for me too I really love our like coherence and the mutual exploration and passion yeah and Thomas is your latest book what's the name of it Collective trauma integration. Is it available in, in It's Anglais? It's available the, next year. Next year, okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, do you have any teaching events that you'd like people to know about in the United States? Or should just go to your website and we'll put it on the bottom of the screen? Maybe the website, we, we, we have large online courses. We just finished a collective trauma online summit with 52,000 people from 176 Whoa, countries. Awesome. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah, it was really amazing. And, uh, yeah, and we have training programs, and you'll find it on our website. It's been a pleasure. Really a delight. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. For me, too. And let's see how we can kind of continue our Continue to play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.